Happy Labor Day weekend. Uh, from wherever you might be watching, we're glad you're joining us at Christ Church today. And uh, on Labor Day weekend, I know for many people that is a day off. Um, my wife reminded me, Julie reminded me today that um, it will be a day of labor in our home. We got a, a house project that I had not, um, I've been delinquent on, we'll say that. And that's going to be our, our task on Monday is to do that. But happy Labor Day um, either way. I, um, I realized that Labor Day weekend has a history to it. Um, like many things, it's not just something that shows up on the calendar, but there, there's a story to how it formed and how it came about in American society. And I want to start today just by looking at a little bit of that. Um, in, the, in the late 1800s, uh, this is a period in time when um, in American working class people, it's easy to be working seven days a week, 10 hours, 12 hours a day. Sometimes you're working alongside your kids. So kids that should be going to first and second grade are in the factory working alongside you. And your family is barely squeaking out uh, a living with these types of, of conditions. Uh, there's no Disney Plus consideration. There's no cell phone bill. Those things aren't there. It's just basic living conditions. And you're working tremendously hard to do that. As a result, um, the labor movement begins to grow and to become stronger um, in American world. And, and I'm not going to try to adjudicate between... Uh, labor movement conversations of the 19th century and business owners or corporations, don't worry, that's not there. But what you do see in the middle of that is you see how important work is to a civilization and how important work is to an individual. Um, labor Day actually has history in Chicago as well because in, in, 19, in 1890s, 1880s, uh, there was a riot here. The labor movement was on a protest. Um, you may have been downtown and seen the Haymarket Memorial uh, right by Ogilvy. Uh, there you will see and you'll read the story about a, a time when riot, rioters were coming, protests were happening, it turned into riot, police came, and it tr turned tragic. And so there was a bomb that was released, police and protesters uh, both died. It's a tragic story, but it was, it was one of the things that spun into motion uh, this day that became a federal holiday uh, just years later. Again, I, I'm, I'm not trying to to make a comment necessarily on what was happening at that time, but I do want you to know that the day, the weekend that we are all experiencing is a part of a larger story, and it's a larger story that has to do with how we think about work and our work lives, our labor. And this morning, that's what we're going to do. I want you to think with me this morning about God's view of labor and what it is that he has to say um, to us. Specifically, we're going to be in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, so if you have your Bible, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, I'm going to read verse 1 and jump down to verse um, 9 for us. And we're going to hear what, in this section of Scripture, where Paul is trying to tell the church how they can live a life to please God, he's going to say how that impacts the lives that they work. So here are the Scriptures as we get started. As for other matters, brothers and sisters, we instructed you how to live in order to please God, as in fact you're already living. Now we ask you and urge you in the Lord Jesus to do this more and more. Now about your love for one another, we do not need to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love each other. And in fact, you do this through God's family throughout Macedonia. And yet we urge you, brothers and sisters, to do so more and more. And, verse 11, 11 and 12 is where we're going to focus today. And to make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work with your hands, just as we told you. For your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so that you will not be dependent on anyone. This morning, from this passage of scripture, we're going to see three shoulds 
three times we should do something that are there. And at the end, there's two different reasons uh, that we should be doing those things. So that's the, that's the organizational model that we're going to go with today. Three shoulds and two reasons. Before I do that, I need to qualify um, a few things. Number one, quickly, some of you are already thinking, oh my goodness, um, this guy's about to talk about work on the North Shore. Like, really? We're, we're going to be talking about why we need to work and work ambitiously? Isn't that, I mean, isn't that telling a bird to fly? I mean, isn't, isn't that talking to a community about people that are not on the side and need to be told to work, but need to be told to stop working, need to be told, don't find your identity in your work. Don't find your meaning and purpose inside of, inside of your life. Don't make work an idol. Don't turn it into a God, right? Isn't that what's happened? Well, yes, that is true. And overwork is certainly a way to not be pleasing to God. But in this passage of scripture this morning, it's actually talking to those on the other side, those that are not working and why we should work. So that's number one. Number two how in the world am I doing a sermon on work in the middle of every single week for the last several months? It's just a million people who go into unemployment who are filing. Never before in the history of America has something like this happened, and now we're going to be saying, hey, you should be working. So very clear, Paul is not talking to people that are trying to work and are not able to, who do not have the opportunity to work vocationally for whatever reason. He's talking to people who have the opportunity to work, who can be contributing, but are sitting it out, or are being idle, or sitting on the side. So make that qualification. And then lastly, when I say the word work throughout the rest of this time, what I think Paul is talking about is not employment, or he's not talking about work for wages in a, in a small sense, and that we may think about it. So when you hear me say work, yes, it means work like I go in, I clock in eight to five, whatever that looks like, or I work a salary job that's there. But he's also talking about really how it is that we contribute to the world that God's created, how it is that we make things of the world. We make meaning, we make relationships, um, we make goods and services, whatever it is that you make, whether that's a volunteer, whether that's paid, whether that's unpaid, whether that's caring for other human beings like your parents or those who are sick or children, whatever it is that you might be doing, just know that as we talk about this, I'm trying to, and I, I think Paul is actually talking about this to the community, it goes in every one of those areas, a very broad definition or very broad understanding of what the Bible is talking about, what Paul is talking about by work day. So getting those qualifications out of the way, three shoulds, let me start with the first one that we see in verse one, where really he's saying that we should be living a life, every square inch of our life, pleasing to God. That's what he says, how to live in order to please God. Now, I skipped over several verses. If you go back and read that, you'll see Paul's talking about how it is that this church should be handling themselves in matters regarding to sexuality, how it is they should be uh, handling their bodies. And we're skipping over that um, to get to this part of it. But if you think about those two things together, it actually gets right back to Genesis chapter 1, the very beginning when God creates people and he puts them on the earth. He tells them to do two things at the very beginning of the story. Genesis chapter 1 and 2, he's saying, be fruitful and multiply. That has to do with making babies, filling the earth, right? That's what I want you to do. And I want you to tend the garden, or I want you to, um, out, out of the, the place that I put you, I want you to cultivate the ground. I want you to bring things up out of the earth and make meaning and purpose and music and goodness and beauty and all those things. I want you as my representative to do these two things. And Paul is saying to please God here, I'm going to tell you how to handle yourselves in this part of your life, and I'm going to tell you how to handle yourself in this part of your life. So what he's talking about is really this cosmic, this major part of God's story. It's not just, it's not just a small part. It's a major part, and that gets to this idea that in every single square inch of our life, we should be pleasing God. So there's a, there's a quote by um, Abraham Kuyper, fairly famous quote, 
And he says this, there is not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. Let me say it again. There's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign, does not cry, mine. In other words, there's not an area of your life in which God is not interested. And not just interested, but interested in being the king, the sovereign, the one who is setting the rules in your life. And so as we talk about a life that's going to be pleasing to God, it certainly encompasses a day like Sunday. It certainly encompasses um, what we do on a day of worship, a day when we gather together as a church, a day that you think about your faith primarily, but it also encompasses what you do on Monday. And oftentimes in our society today, it's pretty easy to have a gap between our faith and our work, our Sunday and our Monday, as a result of that. And it's not every square inch of life that is being um, submitted to or being lived for to please God. Recently, Barna, this research group, did a study, and they specifically were looking at this issue, this gap between Sunday and Monday in Christians' life, and they asked a series of questions. And at the end of this pretty massive survey, they came up with three categories or three um, personality types. They, they call them vocational personalities is the name that's there. And the first one is what they call compartmentalizers. See if you can find yourself in these categories. Compartmentalizers. That, are, that is people who do not see a connection between what they do for their work, again, paid work, unpaid work, and what they do with their faith. Those two things are, they're in different compartments and they don't really have a significant connection. Then secondly, there's onlookers. There's those who, yeah, sometimes I think there's like a dotted line between these two things. I want to like make sure maybe my motivation is good, but it's, it's not a comprehensive approach to it. So there is a, they're an onlooker. There's a way in which their faith looks onto the work that they do. So there's a loose connection. And then finally, the third group they call the integrators. And the integrators are those who have a very deep connection between what it is that they they do, how they contribute to the world, what they make of the world, their relationships, friendships, uh, the vocational work that they do, and the faith, the way that they interact with and relate to God. And the, this third category of integrators, when they do the survey, is actually the smallest. And so the fewest people of Christians, when they identified themselves, showed up in the category of integration, or those that show up as um, integrators. And one of the reasons that I think that that is difficult um, and I was, I've been trying to dig into this topic. I, I really love this, this topic that we're talking about this morning. I think work is not just comprehensive to who we understand ourselves to be and how we provide for our life and how God gifts us and the way he forms and shapes us spiritually. Most of the sin that I deal with are sins that I deal with in the workplace um, and how I learn to forgive and love and see God's character and all those things are true for, for everyone. God is forming and shaping us in all these places. Um, but it's also interesting because there's a fascinating history to the way that work is changing today and work has changed in the past. So one of the books that I was looking at is a book called um, A Thousand Year, or it's called Work, A Thousand Year History. And Andrea Kumlozi, if I say her name right, um, she writes this book. And one of the things that she says, she tries to explain, or what she explains, I think helps understand why there is such a gap for many people in between what they do um, with their work life and what they do with their faith, why there's no integration. And she's just explaining sort of the history of the way that work has changed. And let me just warn you, a very technical uh, thing I'm about to read. And so stay with me, but I want you to see at the end where she's going with it. So she says, the Industrial Revolution, so she's pretty recent, shifted control over global commodity chains to Western European countries, centralizing industrial production in mechanized factories. How's that for a sentence? Mechanization brought wage labor out of the house. This is what I'm trying to say. Brought wage labor out of the house 
right? Out of the workshop and into the factory, contributing to a completely new experience of what it meant for many people to, quote, go to work. So in other words, the 1900s was the first time that it shifted to where the primary people in the world who were working were not working in their home, in the world in which they lived, in their normal uh, warp and woof of life and context and geography, but they were going to another place. They called that place work, and there became a disconnect. And so they had their home life and they had their work life, right? They clocked in and they clocked out, whatever that began to look like that's there. And in the last century, she's saying that work really shifted significantly in that place. And I think that her insider describing the history it's there is one of the ways that we can begin to understand how the culture that we live in, that there might be an integration or might be a gap in our own lives to see how it is that God is significantly interested, not just in our Sunday life, but also in our Monday life, that he wants us to live a seamless life in which, like Abraham Kuyper said, God is, is sovereignly looking at every single square inch of life. And he's saying, that is mine. That is mine. You are steward of what it is that you have. So the first way we should be living a life that's pleasing to God. The second should is in verse nine here, is that we should let love guide the work we do. We should let love guide the work we do. Verse nine just says, um, I read it earlier, but it talks about you should be growing more and more in brotherly love for one another. Now, um, you know, this sounds really soft, certainly. Let love be a part of what you work. And I'm a pastor, so yes, of course, everyone would think that love would guide, it, guide what I'm doing here. But I think Paul's actually talking about something that's bigger than that. He's talking about the motivation for why it is that we do anything that we do and why we even work. And how is it that love could be a guiding principle in the way that we conduct ourselves in the workplace? Um, in First Thessalonians chapter 3, right before this, I, I think Paul's call here to, to be loving comes out of the prayer that he prays in chapter 3, where he's, he's praying that, that as they know Christ, they would abound more and more, they would grow more and more, and it would overflow out of their life. The love that they experience from God would overflow out of their life into the lives of others. And I think that's exactly what he's trying to do there. If you... Um, if you know the name Joel Manby, so this is several years ago now on the television show Undercover Boss. It's not a show that I've actually seen. I haven't seen this episode, but I heard about it. And Joel Manby was a, a pretty successful chief executive officer, and he had been at SeaWorld, and he had been at Saab, and he, had, he was now running this big entertainment company that, that has Dollywood for Dolly Parton fans out there, has uh, Silver Dollar City and some other places like that. And, and he, was one of the, he was one of the bosses that's being investigated. And, and it turns out to be this, this apparently this great show. And he gets a lot of news and a lot of traffic. And he ends up writing a book called Love Works is the name of the book. And his whole point is he's trying to look at 1 Corinthians chapter 13, this chapter on love. And he's trying to show how if you lead from your seat out of love, that it actually works itself out in the American business cycle that's there. So this is someone who is trying to take a principle out of scripture and apply it to his work life and see how it is that he can lead and move forward in this place. And now I don't know the guy. I, you know, for, I, so I don't, I don't want to be affirming of him specifically, um, but I do love the idea of what he's trying to do by integrating scripture and his faith with what he's been called to do on a daily basis to lead other people, to lead an organization. And he deals inside of the book with, with very 
difficult challenges. Like, how is it that quarterly profit margins intersect with loving other people? How is that possible? And he talks about how you tell the truth to employees um, and how you give them true, honest feedback so that they can grow in these different places. And, and he's tackling these issues based on this Christian principle and these seven uh, principles that he says that flow right out of love and how love ends up working. That's there. Now, um, the Apostle Paul is trying to say that you sh- your love should be abounding more and more. Um, Mamby picks up in that book and tries to explain how it worked out in his own life. Um, but imagine for me, f- for just a second, um, if, if love is the thing that drives us, and love is the thing that, that what we love the most ends up moving us forward in life, imagine for a second if what Paul said is, grow in your love for money more and more. I want you to abound more and more in how much you desire riches and wealth and status. That's what I want you to do. Imagine if that was the letter that Paul wrote. This is what you should pursue. Not necessarily loving others, not necessarily loving God, but loving money with all that you have. What would that look like? What what would you celebrate? Well, I think if we take, we put our finger in the air and see which way the wind is blowing, in American society today, this is probably the message that is being spoken. It's not as explicit as Paul is here, but if you look around and look at what's celebrated, if you look at the conversations that are happening around you, if you look at the way sometimes individuals are making decisions in their life, it's not based on love, first and foremost. It's, sometimes it's based on something else, like money, that is driving them to do the things that they do. There's a pastor who comments on this and shows and talks about how money has stepped into this place of prominence in our lives today. And this is what he says. He says that Amazon is now the new temple and that the visa statement is the new altar and that double clicking is the new liturgy, that lifestyle bloggers are the priests and priestesses. Money is the new God. No wonder that Jesus said so much about and warned against the love of money over other things. Instead of letting necessarily money or status or whatever it is be the guiding principle for how you work, Paul here is saying that love is the thing that should be driving forward and should be overflowing out of your life. So number one, we should live every square inch of life pleasing to God. Number two, we should let love drive our work. And then here, number three, the third thing I want you to see, verse 11, is that we should ambitiously work for God. We should ambitiously work for God. So Paul says, Make it your ambition, and then he has this kind of, this whole sentence here I think goes together. The colon can be a little confusing, but make it your ambition to lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and to work with your hands. It feels like an oxymoron, right? Make it your ambition and lead a quiet life. So right away, ambition brings up um, images or ideas of energetically moving forward, an industrious life, right? Producing, accomplishing, reaching, grabbing, and then quiet life brings up the exact opposite of those things. So how is it that we navigate this statement that Paul um, is saying that's here? So uh, one simple way to think about ambition is ambition is that thing which makes you tick. Ambition is the thing that makes you tick. And in this day and age, he's writing this to the Thessalonian church. Thessalonian, uh, or that church was inside of a city, Roman Greek city called Thessalonica, which was really 
a major hub of commerce. It was, it was becoming, it was becoming um, the, one of the most significant cities, and for a while in the first century, it was the capital of the empire. It was a place where there were ships and harbors that were coming in, right? The, the homes cost as much as Silicon Valley today. I mean, it, it, is, it is the place to be in the empire, and because of that, this, this people, these Romans, have certain values, and ambition would have been one of those values, but in, ambition, the way that Paul's talking about it, would have been taking their value and flipping it upside down. He, he would have been he would have been uh, giving a counter value to, what, to what's there. And for us today, I think sometimes, specifically in the church, we corrected this and say, yes, we do not want to be ambitious people. Uh, we want to, you know, we want to be humble people. But oftentimes in doing that, I think we overcorrect. I think it's a good instinct, but I think we can overcorrect. And I think that ambition has value. And here's one of the things, one of the reasons I think Paul's saying to be ambitious this way is, is uh, as one, one thinker says, he says, many think that ambition is nothing more than the drive for personal behavior to, be on, to have honor and to have fame. And as a result, ambition loses this God-implanted drive to improve things, to produce things, to develop things, and to create. And so ambition becomes neglected inside of the Christian community. But instead, he's saying that ambition is this thing that can be rescued by God. And as Paul is saying here, you can be ambitious to live a life for God and to accomplish things for God. So let me parse out a couple other things as we move forward here and try to understand this. Because quiet life, mind your own business, work with your hands, each of those are important. I don't have a ton of time to talk about them, but I think quiet life is really... Um, what he's getting at is he's trying to just say that you need to exercise restraint and not, not jump into the foolishness that's happening around. And when he says, mind your own business, this is a community, people who have, again, remember they've stopped working. They're being idle in the community. They're being busybodies. They're using all their time to just track people on social media and to comment on them. That's what's happening in the, in the first century in its, own, in its own terms, right? And because they're, not, because they're not contributing, because they're not working with their own hands and making their own earning their own living in there, they're, they're causing trouble. And Paul's saying, no, 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 quiet life. That's, don't get involved in the foolishness that's there. Don't spend your time being a busybody, stirring up trouble, going around in these different places, right? Mind your own business and work and contribute to, make something of it. And when you're doing that, it's important, and he, he uses this language of working with your hands. Now, <laughs> um, the reason that I think that that is significant and the reason that many people who comment on this really dig into this specific place is that this would have been a counter value. The same way that ambition in this way would have been different than the culture of the time. When Paul is writing this, he, and he's saying work with your hands, that is not what the Greeks and Romans would be thinking at all, right? It, that, that class of work in their mind was degrading. It was, it was below who they were. They were the people who had power. They would go conquer another nation, and they would bring in the people who would work with their hands. They, they would have, whether it's through a working class or through slavery or whatever it is at the time, they would be, um, they would be distancing themselves from that kind of physical manual labor because that is for people who are lower than they are and they are a higher people who are there. And Paul is not doing that at all. As a matter of fact, he's picking up on what is a, a major part of the Christian tradition. From the very beginning, what does God do when you f- he's first introduced? God is sticking his hands in the dirt, and he is forming man and woman out of the dirt. His hands are dirty. He's forming it, and he's putting them in a garden and telling them to do the same thing. When you see the, Hebrew, the heroes of the Christian faith, Abraham, Moses, David, they're all shepherds. They're all working with their hands. There, When Jesus shows up, not only does he take on flesh, but he, he starts out by being a tradesman, right? He's a carpenter. He is working with his hands. What is the author of this letter? Paul himself. Paul makes his living, and Timothy, who's with him all the time, they make their living by making tents, 
Earlier, he talked about how hard he works to make these tents so that he won't be a burden to anyone. And so he's saying that it's important to be working with your hands. Now, I'm not making an aggregarian statement about why we should not be a part of the information age and be working with our minds. No, 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 not at all. That's, that's not what's happening in this context. And to read that back into this would make no sense um, to do that. So don't hear me saying that. But I do think that that work of any kind needs to be seen for what it is. It needs to be seen as a chance, an opportunity to contribute to the world, to make something out of the world, and to act like God who was the first worker the first one to get his hands dirty and to make something in the world and then invite us to do the same thing. Earlier this year, before travel stopped and those things, I was in New York City for an event and one night um, I was walking back to the hotel late by myself and I happened to go down a pretty narrow road and it was high buildings on both sides over there and it was the time of day when everyone was bringing the trash out of the buildings. And so uh, if you've been there, you've seen the, this right on the street, right on the curbs that are there as cars are buzzing by still and cabs are going through. There are, there are just piles and piles of trash bags that come out in, on top and cardboard boxes that are just stacked, stacked, stacked all the way up. And as I went there, I'm, I'm watching, um, and I was late enough in the night to where the work crews were starting to come and pick these things up. And I just watched as this entire street went from chaos and clutter and garbage and... and um, and, and confusion, in a sense, to clean and orderly. And I, like, I, mean, I was going, this is absolutely beautiful. This is, this is amazing. Like, I wanted to go up to these guys and give them a big hug and say, what you do matters. This is, ama- this is, this is so good for you and f- good for civilization and good for society. I just started thinking, what if, what if, these, what if, what if this crew, what if all of Manhattan just said, okay, for two weeks or ten days, whatever, we're not going to clean up all that stuff on the streets. We're not going to go inside of these buildings and we're not going to clean the restrooms anywhere. Like, what would happen if that type of labor that may not be heralded as the, the top labor inside of New York City, may not be celebrated inside of the culture, right? What would happen if someone didn't, if that didn't happen for 10 days? Well, I mean, <laughs> we're in a pandemic, but I mean, the amount of disease and the, and the amount of chaos and, and, the, and the amount of um, unhealthy, non-flourishing things that would happen inside of that city in a very short period of time because someone wasn't contributing in this way. And it was just this beautiful picture for me to see the value of every single uh, worker and oftentimes workers who are not celebrated in the same way. But I think in God's view, working ambitiously for him to do whatever it is that we are called to do is something that should not just be celebrated, but should be honored inside of our communities. So, Number one, we should be living every square inch of life pleasing to God. That's the call. Two, let love drive the work that you do. Number three, as we just looked at, work ambitiously for God. Make something in the world. Grow something. Start something new. Get out there. Do it. Take a risk, right? That's, that's part of what uh, Paul is telling these people to do. Don't sit back idle. And he gives, he ends with these two short reasons for why they should do that. Number one, that there's people who don't know God who are watching you. There's people, you are telling a story of what God is like by the work that you do. So what is the story that you're telling about God by the way you're contributing to the world? God is untruthful. God is impatient. God is angry and fierce. God loves this more than anything else in the world, right? The way that you are working and the way that you demonstrate in your own life is the story that you're telling those who are watching on, the onlookers, about what God is. So Paul is trying to make sure don't show that God is this idle God who is sitting off to the side, not working. No, 
God is the great worker. He, he is the one who has initiated all this. He is keeping the world in motion over and over. So tell a true story about him. So you will gain this respect of those that are watching from the outside. And then number two, don't be dependent on others. Um, now, the, one of the reasons they would not have, they would have stopped working and started to be dependent on other people um, during this time is because they were using scriptural reasons. They had good Bible verses to explain why they could do this. Because they said what? Jesus said that he's coming back. And since Jesus is coming back, we don't need to work. We'll just sit here and we'll relax until he comes back. And so that's what created this idleness. It was actually the spiritual motivation or spiritual reason and cause that was showing up. And, And Paul is trying to get at that. And he's saying, no, if you read the next chapter, that's exactly what he's doing. And he's saying the master isn't gonna announce when he's gonna come back. Um, so get to work now, stay, keep your head down and keep working, keep doing what you know to be true and good in your life. Maybe they were quoting Jesus from the Sermon on the Mount who says this, who says, don't worry about what you're gonna eat or what you're gonna drink for doesn't God clothe the birds of the fields? And so they're kicking back, they're relaxing, right? Hey, just trust God, don't be a worry, don't, don't overwork, don't, you know, don't, don't get wound up about all this. But if you think about it for just a second, God doesn't drop worms inside of a nest. As a matter of fact, he doesn't even build a nest. What happens with these birds? They like wake up before the dawn and they're out flapping around and they're finding little twigs and they're building their nest and they're working hard and they're going around all over the place picking worms out of the ground or whatever it is that they might be eating, bugs at the time, and they're working tremendously hard, right? I don't see the birds in my house playing chase until late in the afternoon. I mean, they're, they're always working early in the morning and then they're playing later, but my, my point is that you can take Bible verses and you can try to twist them as this Corinthian church might have done, I mean, as the Thessalonians might have done here, and we can do the same things in our lives, as we can take a verse in the Bible, and we can twist it to make sure that it fits exactly what it is that we want to do in our own life, and Paul is warning them against doing anything like that, so that they will continue to not be dependent on anyone else, but they'll work hard with their own hands, working for the Lord. Now, we are going to close um, today uh, by entering into a time of communion. And as we do that, I'm going to pray for us here in just a second. Um, but we, I want to do that. I want to make one quick connection. Um, and that connection is this. We are not going to celebrate communion with grapes and grain. We're going to celebrate it with bread and wine. It's actually a product of the world that was created by people, right? It, it didn't just show up in this form. It was something that was created. It was something that was worked for. It was something that was cultivated out of the earth. This good and beautiful thing that Jesus uses to symbolize his death um, for us and his resurrection and the forgiveness that we can find uh, through Christ. So that's where we're headed and I just want you to see that connection to the work that's done in the world and the way that he, Jesus even redeems that work in giving us this gift, this community meal that we share with one another to tell the true story of God. The true story that God is a God who not just created us but who loves us and sent his own son Jesus to come and give his life for our life so we can find life in him receive forgiveness of our sins, and then go and bless others with the life that he has given to us. So join me in prayer, and we will have a time of communion. Heavenly Father, there is is, uh, so much in your word about how it is that we should be conducting our lives. Thank you for inviting us um, to live lives that are pleasing to you. And thank you that that's not just what we do one hour a day or for a few hours of the day. Um, on a Sunday, but that is comprehensive. It's in every area of our life, that you are interested, that you stand over us and you say, yes, that is mine. And then you invite us to be stewards of the things that you've given us. So help us now, God, to have motivations uh, to be driven by love. We need to experience your love as we're about to by sharing this communion meal together. 
uh, your goodness to us so that we can turn around and give that to those that we are um, working with, that we are living with, that we have relationships with. And then God, give us an ambition, give us a dream. Uh, fill us, we pray, with your mind and your heart to go out into your world and to make good things, valuable things um, of the world so that we can be a part of the work that you are doing. And we pray now as we step into this time of communion, God, that it would be a reminder of the grace that we have received, of the forgiveness that we have in the body and the blood of Jesus.